farmer who's trying to build healthier soil, a sign they'll often mention that tells them they're on the right track is finding more earthworms. Almost everybody agrees that earthworms are good for soils. I mean, nature conservationists and farmers don't always agree on things, but they totally would agree on that. And everybody knows or thought they knew that earthworms increase plant production, but actually it was never quantified until we did it. Dr. Jean-Willem von Hoonigen is a soil geobiochemist, but he has become fascinated by earthworms and the important role they play in agricultural soils such as making nutrients like phosphorus more available, as just one example. In soils with a very low phosphorus status, in the earthworm cost, temporarily the availability of phosphorus could be increased with a factor 100 or, or even 1,000. So the earthworm really temporarily loosens the, the phosphorus from those soil particles. But it's surprising how little most of us know about this creature that's so important to our soil ecology. In a lot of areas, Topsoil is basically a layer of earthworm droppings, if you want to see it like that. Every 10 or 15 years, every particle of soil goes through an earthworm. We dig into the role of earthworms in agricultural soils on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Fellow Ag Nerds, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. Now, many of you already know that one of the other podcasts I host is called Soil Sense, where I get to share stories of farmers, researchers, consultants, and extension who are all collaborating to build healthier soils particularly in North Dakota. Through five seasons of that podcast that's produced by Dr. Abby Wick, I've heard time and again from farmers who've implemented practices such as cover crops, reducing tillage, and incorporating livestock, that they've seen real changes happen in their soils. Now, one question I always ask them is, how do you know? You know, how do you know you're on the right track? What are you seeing or experiencing that is telling you that you're doing things the right way. Inevitably, one piece of evidence that they'll often talk about to show that they're developing soil biology and organic matter is the fact that they're digging up more and more earthworms when they go out into their fields. Now, this really caught my curiosity about what's bringing these earthworms back or causing them to reproduce in higher levels and what value they have going forward to continuing to build healthier soils. And really, that's what today's episode is all about. Before I introduce you to our guests, though, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this quarter, which is Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early-stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers, which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website, especially if you're an entrepreneur in an animal health-related industry. Make sure you go get in touch with them. Thanks, Merck Animal Health Ventures, for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's topic of earthworms. And uh, one way that I'm sort of thinking about this episode is in terms of organic matter. I mean, I think everybody would agree that in general, our agricultural soils have lost organic matter over time, and that building soil organic matter back up would be 
a really good thing with numerous benefits. I mean, things like water holding capacity and nutrient holding capacity. However, we can't just feasibly apply organic matter like we do chemical inputs, at least not at a commercial scale. We have to build it. And it's a complex biological ecosystem, which is, of course, where important organisms like earthworms enter the picture. So I think that's good context to keep in mind as we hear from today's guest. That guest is Dr. John Willem von Hoonigen. He's a professor of soil biochemistry at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And I apologize to all of my Dutch speakers out there for my botched pronunciations of these words. I promise this is the best I can do. He's a trained soil fertility specialist. And in fact, him and I originally connected about some soil carbon sequestration work that he was a part of. Uh, you're going to hear more about that from one of his co-authors on a future episode. But when he told me he was spending a lot of his time these days focused on the role of earthworms in agricultural soils, I knew we had to do an episode on this topic. He's been a part of several studies on earthworms, such as their effect on crop yields, soil fertility, and greenhouse gas emissions, all of which we'll talk about on today's episode. I find his comments on phosphorus to be particularly interesting and important, so make sure you stay tuned for those. First, though, I'm going to drop you into the conversation where he's going to give you some more background in his own words. So enjoy the fascinating world of earthworms with Jean-Willem von Hoonigen. Uh, my name is Jan-Willem van Groeningen. I'm a professor at Wageningen University in uh, the Netherlands, a professor in soil biogeochemistry, I would say. Uh, I focus mainly on uh, nutrient cycles, elemental cycles in the soil, so carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and especially how they are affected by soil biota. And uh, so a bit microorganisms, but I tend to focus quite a lot on uh, earthworms. And then, of course, my main interest is in how Earthworms and other biota can help to make agricultural systems more sustainable and less leaky to the environment. And tell me about how you got into this. I understand that you didn't set out to study earthworms as your you know, lifelong ambition. How did you get uh, into this field of study and, and just kind of tell us how you got here? Yeah, indeed. I studied soil science here in Wageningen University. Then I went to California a couple of years and I came back. And basically I was... Um, interested in, in like rather classically agronomically oriented type of nitrogen cycling studies. And one of the things that we were studying was uh, emissions of nitrous oxide. So that's uh, an important greenhouse gas, huh? just like CO2 and methane. And we would have these, these lab experiments where we would have small columns of soil and we would apply certain fertilizers and then we would measure how much nitrous oxide would come out of it and then determine what the best you know, way of applying them, etc., was to minimize those emissions. But sometimes uh, we had a problem, and, and, and sometimes there was actually uh, uh, the technician, he came to me and, and he asked me to, to come down to, to have a look at the experiment because there was a problem. There was an earthworm in one of those soil columns. It had messed up this whole soil column, and, and the fluxes were all wrong. They were way too high or way too low uh, compared to the, to the normal treatments uh, without earthworms. And that Actually, it went on for a couple of years and I wasn't thinking very much about it. You know, those are outliers. You have statistics, so you kick them out. But at some point, I started to realize that, you know, these earthworms, of course, they, you know, they're not the exception. They are the rule. In the field, they're also there. And if they they mess up our emissions in the lab, they probably also do that so in the field. So I started to realize that 
earthworms were really messing up all the parameters that I was interested in. The microbial population, the availability of carbon, uh, the porosity of the soil, which is also important for nitrous oxide, the availability of nitrogen, the pH. So all of the things that, that um, control N2O emissions were really affected by earthworms. So then basically I realized that I wanted to study them to understand how they affect real uh, N2O emissions. So, so I guess you could say I'm not. I'm definitely not a biologist by training. I'm also less interested in the in the earthworm as individual as species, but more in what they can do for the soil. I'm always more interested in the in the soil functional aspect of it. And from what I understand, Charles Darwin was one of the first to really get interested in and in kind of study earthworms. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It, it's really it's something that earthworm specialists always love to talk about. His last uh, book was actually on on earthworms. And it, it seems a bit strange because, of course, he came up with the, the theory of evolution. And this seems a rather silly subject to study for him. But actually, it, it, it makes a lot of sense because Darwin was really interested in uh, seemingly very small processes that nobody really noticed. But he was able to realize how important they could be if you would multiply them over millions of years, very many individuals. And that's, of course, what evolution is all about but also earthworms, because he realized how many earthworms there are in the soil. And he was looking at some things that he noticed around this estate in England, and he realized how large the impact of earthworms were. For example, he, there was a field that they tried to improve with applying quite a lot of, uh, of rubble and other, and other stuff, like 10, 15 years ago. And he noticed that 10, 15 years later, it was actually hidden under a layer of soil. Somehow it had sank into the soil. And he realized that that must have been because earthworms have dug up soil from below it and deposited it above. So he was actually the first one who says who realized that that in a lot of areas, topsoil is basically a layer of earthworm droppings, if you want to see it like that. Every 10 or 15 years, every particle of soil goes through an earthworm. Every how often? It depends very much. England, like the Netherlands, it's, it's a, a temperate... Uh, climate, it is, it is quite wet, it, it, it has a lot of earthworms. Yeah, every 10 to 15 years, the, the estimates vary a little bit, but uh, that's the general figure that's often mentioned. And what's happening to soil when it passes through an earthworm? Give us sort of the before and after. Well, less than, for example, with, with animals, with, with mammals like us, we really digest our food. Earthworms don't do that. They eat, of course, soil, which you can also not digest a lot. And so it goes through it pretty quickly. But one of the things that happens is that the microbial community is really activated. Earthworms excrete some sort of mucus inside their gut to activate microbial activity, to get some uh, nutrients for, from them uh, out of the organic matter in the soil. And if they excrete those gas, they're still very much um, enriched in microbial activity. So there's much more carbon available. There's much more nitrogen available. It's basically... a a booster of soil activity, if you want to see it that way. Yeah. And I mean, that I, I think it's uh, that makes it really obvious why from a fertility, from a nutrient standpoint, why earthworms would be an asset, you know, on any farm. But I also understand there's some kind of physical properties that are really beneficial for crops as well. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, that's true. What I just mentioned was, of course, more the biochemical properties, although these costs also... Uh, they typically become aggregates that are also good for soil structure. 
But of course, an obvious other thing that earthworms are doing is that they, they dig through the soil. And certain earthworms, they, uh, they really dig quite deep permanent burrows that can be amazing for uh, things like uh, drainage and gas exchange with the atmosphere, for example. And there have really been some pretty remarkable uh, studies where they show that earthworms can dig two, three meters deep sometimes in the, in the U.S., uh, a study was done, and sometimes they even dig towards drainage pipes because they, they sense that their burrows can be drained if they do that. And then they had these nice experiments where they showed that if you apply uh, water on top with, with the collar, that it really drains very fast through those holes, uh, burrows to the drainage system. So they that can be good or it can be bad, but at least it makes a huge difference. So in, in general, earthworms don't dig that deep. But in general, they really do improve soil structure. Yeah. And I understand there's been studies that uh, show a significant improvement in yield depending on the presence of earthworms. Can you can you give us maybe a, a, a brief meta-analysis of those studies between kind of yield and earthworms? Yeah, yeah. We, indeed, a couple of years ago, we basically looked at all studies that were published on this. So we tried to, to look, if you, if you combine all these results what is the average effect of having earthworms in a system on plant yield? And on average, uh, the yield increased with about 24, 25%, and the above-ground biomass also. Uh, and that was, that was quite a remarkable uh, effect. I, I mean, I think that almost everybody agrees that, so that earthworms are good for soils. I mean, in the Netherlands, uh, nature conservationists and farmers don't always agree on things but they totally would agree on that. And everybody knows or thought they knew that earthworms increase plant production, but actually it was never quantified until we did it. So that 25%, that's pretty neat. And of course, I like, as a scientist, I like to tell that the objects that I'm studying can have such a huge import effect. On the other hand, I think there's also some things you should say about those 25%. It also... It, of course, depends on the studies that it is based on. Eh? It's the efforts of those studies. And those studies tend to be in systems that got little or no fertilization, with nitrogen, for example, and that got lots of residue, crop residue added to the soil. So the earthworms could eat that and, and, and mineralize that. So I think on average, uh, that, that number is a bit biased towards very poor systems. Uh, if you look at a better fertilized systems, for example, I think the effect of earthworms on at least on, on nitrogen availability, for example, is less than that. It's still significant. It's important. But I don't think that in the average farm uh, in the Netherlands or in Canada, uh, you would have a 25% increase uh, by just having earthworms. It's a bit more complex than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to go a little bit more into the complexity because it's also not like you could just add earthworms and be better off, right? You, you've got to sort of foster this ecosystem beneath the soil surface that is conducive to earthworms. And probably those yields are maybe correlated with earthworms, but not necessarily caused by earthworms. Is that right? Yeah. There's always the chicken and the egg question with earthworms. Earthworms, uh, they can improve soils, but earthworms, they also love to live in good soils. So it's always the question, where do you start? And, and in the Netherlands, sometimes there are places where a municipality has some big problems with soil structure and they try to introduce earthworms there. And almost always that fails because, like you say, the soil has to be, has to be right. And if you just apply earthworms somewhere, they will probably just die. You have to make sure that, that the earthworms can at least survive 
and start to make the soil better. That's always a question that we struggle with a little bit. How, we know that earthworms are good for the soil, but how can we really improve? That's not so easy. I think earthworms are a very good indicator for good soils. In general, in the Netherlands, I think it is difficult to have a good soil if you don't have earthworms. I think it's a very good indicator. But changing that, that's, that's quite tricky, actually. Yeah, it, I, th- I think that's an interesting sort of spin on on the topic here, which is like, what can earthworms teach us about what makes a healthy soil? And so maybe maybe you could talk about what are some of the farming practices that either promote or you know denigrate earthworm populations in soil. Is, has there been much research in that area? Yes, there has been some, and I think people quite often would first think about like agrochemicals, uh, pesticides, and stuff like that. But actually, I don't think. That is very important. Not even tillage. Uh, tillage has an effect. Uh, the less you till, the less earthworms are disturbed. And that tillage can certainly, on the short term, kill earthworms. But I think the two most important things are, is there enough food and is there enough moisture? So residue management is immensely important. Uh, if, if you want to have earthworms, they have to have something to eat. And of course, they are very... Um, in essence, they're still semi-marine creatures in the sense that they really like to live in quite moist environments, so they die relatively easy if it's dry. Uh, so things like irrigation, drainage, those two are basically the most important uh, things. Has there been any studies on that as far as like, what would be step one if you wanted to kind of foster an environment for earthworms? You know, is it get the residue in there and the earthworms will come or, you know, is it a uh, combination of the two at the same time? Or do we know much about the timing of how those like biological ecosystems develop under the soil surface? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I, I know that, for example, in, in the Netherlands, in, in arable soils, you always have fewer earthworms than in pasture soils, especially some, you have three major groups of earthworms and some of them survive not well in arable soils, some do. So what, it, what my colleagues have been experimenting with, for example, is, is buffer strips around uh, fields uh, with grass and make sure that uh, the earthworms are, uh, have a safe haven to start from and, if, and basically enter the field. So that is one thing. For the rest, yeah, in general, well, Canada is a bit different, I think, because there are, I think there are still large parts where earthworms have not arrived yet since the last ice age. But of course, they are there. I think they are um, at many places. But in the Netherlands, they're everywhere. So if the soil is suitable, it will arrive very quickly. As you may know, at the Netherlands, we have quite a lot of uh, polder areas that we reclaim from the sea. And the last polder areas were re- reclaimed in the 50s and the 60s of, uh, of the last century. And so colleagues of mine also did experiments there on, on how fast the earthworms arrived and they introduced some earthworms at the center of the field and then with aerial photography, they kept track of how fast they were moving because you could see it and because the soil was doing much better there than in the surrounding area. So th- those are pretty cool studies on uh, on how that works. But of course, in most areas in the world, there are already earthworms. So it is surprisingly difficult to study what earthworms exactly do because it's almost impossible to compare it with a system where you don't have any earthworms and that still has well-developed soils. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm quite interested in, in North America because you still have these fronts of invading earthworms in, in forests, for example, where you can really look almost in real time what happens uh, when earthworms arrive in a system. That's really interesting. And, and did you say there's three major groups of earthworms? And if so, what are those? 
Yeah, basically you have the first one, the APJX living in, in on top of the soil. They eat fresh residue. They don't dig deep. And so they stay really superficial. You can recognize them because they are uniformly pigmented. So the body is basically uh, equally homogeneously red or, or purplish. And then the second group is uh, so in pastures, for example, those are the main ones you would probably find. Then you have the endogenics, and they eat more digested organic matter deeper in the soil. Um, they uh, have more permanent burrows. They're very good for soil structure. And because they never go to the to the surface, they don't need pigmentation. So generally, they are uh, grayish, greenish grayish of their whole body. And then the third group are anesics, and um, they are quite often quite large. Uh, they dig uh, deep vertical burrows. So they are these species um, that I just mentioned that um, can deep two, three meters deep, perhaps. And they eat on top. So they, they, they get the residue from the top and they bring it into the soil in their burrows. And because typically only their head is exposed to the, to the surface, their head is typically pigmented. So it is red or, or purplish. And the, the hindsight is, uh, is gray. So that's a very easy way, uh, this pigmentation of distinguishing between the different uh, three different groups of earthworms. Uh, it's not as simple as that. A lot of earthworms, they, they are a little bit in between. And if they are hungry, you know, they don't care what group they are in. They, they're eating. Uh, but under ideal conditions, this is actually uh, how you can easily recognize them. Yeah. And within those three groups, there's quite a bit of diversity in species. Is that right? In several species? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I don't have it in my head right now how many species of earthworms. There are a couple of thousand in the world, I think. In a country like the Netherlands, there are about 21, 22 species described. So there are many, but not as many as in some other groups of, uh, of uh, animals. And you did talk about sort of the nutrient availability, but can you talk about it specifically with phosphorus? Because I think that's a big deal of you know, we, we have this limited amount of phosphorus available to us and we apply enough, but a lot of it gets tied up and doesn't become available to our crops. And so I think that's an interesting role that an earthworm can play. Can you talk about that? Yes, indeed. About eight or nine years ago, I got interested in that. And it's it's like you say it very correctly. Huh? Phosphorus is very easily bound chemically to soil particles. So in countries like the Netherlands, we actually have an enormous amount of phosphorus in our soils from past over-fertilization on average enough to feed our crops in theory for about 40 or 50 years. But you cannot get it out. And so a couple of years ago, we worked together with, with soil chemists to really understand this, this behavior. And we noticed that in, in soils with a very low phosphorus status, in the earthworm cost, temporarily the availability of phosphorus could be increased with a factor 100 or, or even 1,000. So that could last for a couple of weeks only in the, in the cast of the earthworms. But of course, very interesting. And also the, the chemists uh, were always a little bit skeptical about, about me and my, my earthworms. They really got interested when they saw that. And uh, actually, uh, over the last couple of years, we tried to find, to, to really understand what is going on there. And I think there are a couple of things. There is some mineralization of organic matter, which is uh, something that we know uh, biota do, and nitrogen, for example, uh, it works very much like that. But what is maybe more interesting is that there's also a lot of inorganic phosphorus. Yeah? So that, that phosphorus that I talked about is previous uh, over-fertilization of phosphorus that is tied to the soil particles. 
Earthworms increase the amount of, of dissolved organic carbon in their casts. So you have a lot of dissolved carbon, which is negatively charged, just like a phosphorus. And that means that it binds to the same soil particles as phosphorus. So if you have a lot of that DOC, that, that dissolved organic carbon, it means that more of that uh, is bound to the soil particles and less phosphorus. The phosphorus becomes uh, desorbed from the soil and it becomes available temporarily at least for the plants. So that is a chemical process that as an ecologist, uh, I frankly never considered, but, but the soil chemists uh, suggested it. And this seems to be part of this big effect that we are seeing. So the earthworm really temporarily loosens the, the phosphorus from those soil particles. Yeah. So interesting. Well, you know, the show is called Future of Agriculture. So I always try to get guests to sort of speculate or extrapolate on kind of like, where can all this go? You know, as, as you think about, we're learning more and more about the importance of earthworms. And as you said, we're not trying to say they're perfect uh, and they're, they're good for every possible thing, but that they are very important. What might happen in our agricultural systems with kind of the research you're doing that might look different for agriculture in the future, the more we learn about earthworms? Well, I certainly do think that earthworms indeed are, are, are part of a future more sustainable agriculture. I think we need to, to learn how we can keep more of them in our soils and, and, and use them to, their, to our advantage. I think in the future, uh, we will rely more and more on, on, on recycling, on, on making agriculture more circular, on making sure that every rest product we have is being recycled. Uh, the nutrients are being returned to the soil. And earthworms are very, very important for that. They're very good in decomposing compounds that are not so easy to decompose. Uh, if you, if they're very easy to decompose, it's, it's easy. You can do it with bacteria and fungi. But So for this, this circularity aspect of agriculture, I think they are immensely important. And for nitrogen, we know already for quite some time that they're good uh, for, for providing uh, nitrogen to crops and but this research that we're doing on phosphorus is really has opened our eyes on how important they also are for the soil chemistry and for the chemical behavior of all sorts of nutrients. And that is true for phosphorus, but I expect that it's also true for a lot of, uh, especially micronutrients that chemically have some, some of the same uh, issues in soil, I would say. And so I, th I hope that we uh, learn how to keep the earthworms in the, in the soil and that we yeah, we'll use them to our advantage much more than we used to in, in closing our nutrient cycles. Well, this, I mean, I feel like I've been just peppering you with questions. I hope that's okay, because I just find this endlessly fascinating. Anything that happens below the soil surface, I just find interesting, but especially earthworms. Are there large-scale worm farms as far as, you know, generating vermicompost on a large scale? I know my dad has like one of those worm bins, you know, for vermicompost, but are there commercial operations doing that at a larger scale? Um, in the Netherlands, there are a few, but typically uh, the vermicompost is still like a byproduct. They typically grow the earthworms for bait, things like that. And, and so I'm not sure. I was in the earthworm conference in China a couple of years ago. I know that they were working at larger scale uh, with, with vermicomposting. But I must say that I'm not sure quite how that works. I think vermicomposting is, well, like you say, your father has one, been, I have one. It's a great thing. In, in the Netherlands, there are a lot of uh, communities who have them, like communal earthworm uh, compost uh, 
facilities. So that's that's very nice. But I think there's still some research lacking on on uh, vermicomposting as as compared to normal composting. It's something I'd like to get into a bit more. But uh, yeah, it's, right now it seems to a lot of people are enthusiastic about it. But I think there's more to be found out to what extent vermicompost is really better than a normal compost. Maybe something that well that I always found very interesting is that uh, there are actually uh, large farm operations associated with earthworms, but not uh, vermicompost, but uh, basically catching earthworms. And they're based in Canada. And when I first heard this, I didn't believe it. But here in the Netherlands, you can buy night crawlers, uh, Lumbricus terrestris, uh, because they're good for bait and they're good for soil improvement and things like that. And somebody told me that they were actually flown in from Canada. And at first, I didn't believe it, but it turns out to be true. It's actually a European species, so a long time ago, it, it came from Europe to North America. But apparently, there are farms where in the early morning, there are lots of night crawlers on the soil surface. They are being um, collected and shipped basically overseas by, by plane. Uh, and apparently, there was, I saw a paper on, on uh, how these farmers make their living, and they really make most of their money by the worms and not by the by the crop that they also grow on their land. So that's it's, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's the most sustainable uh, solution of flying earthworms across the, across the globe to improve our soils and to maybe to sequester carbon. But I think it's very fascinating that you had this European earthworm that came to North America. Somehow it is doing better there, at least to some extent. And now they're harvesting it and putting it back to, to Europe to improve our soils. I think that's, that's a fascinating story. Yeah, that's really interesting. And what are we finding about the earthworm's impact on emissions? Yeah, we also did a meta-analysis on that a couple of years ago. So we looked at all studies where they looked in the presence of earthworms and the absence of earthworms and what that meant for, for CO2 emissions and for N2O emissions, and not so much for methane because there were no studies on that. And well, for CO2, the story is definitely that earthworms, they break down organic matter. So they, at least in the short term, they lead to an increase in CO2 emission, which, which sounds like they're not good for greenhouse gas emissions. The story is a bit more complex than that because earthworms also increase plant growth. So that means there's also more carbon entering the soil. And there are also indications that earthworms can, through their activity, are also, on the one hand, they're increasing emissions, but on the other hand, they're also bringing new carbon quicker into more stable fractions in the soil. So I think there's still a debate on, on whether earthworms actually uh, help with sequestering carbon or whether they actually don't help or even uh, uh, result in a bit of carbon loss. I don't think they really help a lot with sequestering carbon, I think. Uh, they're just a part of the of the whole system that we need to understand. But I also don't think they're very detrimental there. With N2O, we found uh, something quite remarkable that in the presence of, of earthworms, on average, uh, the N2O emissions, the nitrous oxide emissions, uh, really increased quite a lot with several tens of percentages. And that was a bit of a shock uh, because everybody loves earthworms and uh, nobody really wants to hear anything negative about them. So when we published it, some people were a little bit upset. On the other hand, I, I think you should look at it the right way. This does not mean that earthworms are somehow increasing, are responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions. And they only do so, we saw in our studies, if you have a system where we apply too much nitrogen and then you have this excess of nitrogen 
and then the earthworms together with the microbes who do the actual production of uh, these greenhouse gases, they get into gear. And so it is up to us to make sure that we have the optimal conditions for earthworms to help us improve our soils. But on average, yes, we did find an increase in N2O emissions uh, in the presence of earthworms. Yeah, I appreciate you getting into this, some of the nuances there because, yeah, everybody wants that headline, right? Is this good for emissions or bad for emissions? But it's a little bit more complicated than that, you know, probably in most things, but definitely in, in earthworms, right? Well, what I really like, what I always say is, you know, I'm an earthworm specialist. I love studying them, uh, not because they're good or because they're bad, but because they're important. I mean, everything that is important has probably good and bad sides. And I really want to understand why they are so important. So I'm not, I'm not so afraid if I find something that is not, you know, hundred uh, percent good for everything. So in that sense, I, I, I see it more as a challenge to, to better understand what's going on. Yeah. Well, this is great. A- anything else uh, before I let you go, any closing comments or something we didn't get to, or that you want to make sure you mention before I let you go? No, not really. Well, maybe I want to reemphasize that they already said earlier, huh, that, that earthworms are just so very important. If you have earthworms in your soil, it probably means you have a good soil. They are good for many things, but most of all, they are very important that we really need to understand what they do in order to understand how we can improve our soils and how we can make our future agricultural systems more sustainable. Such interesting stuff. Thank you so much to Jean Willem for being on the show today. This is such a fascinating but often overlooked aspect of the future of agriculture. I mean, if I had to distill everything we talk about on this show down to one thing that's fundamental for our future in this industry, it's soil health. And I think earthworms can not only be a good indicator of healthy soils, but a good contributor to healthy soils. So it was certainly a treat to learn more about this important work. I'm going to make sure I include links in the show notes where if you'd like You can go learn more. I also have another 15 minutes or so of bonus content. So if you're really interested in this earthworm stuff and felt like I didn't give you enough here today, I'm going to be posting that over at the FOA community. That's over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. But thank you so much, though, for your time and for your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. (laughs) 